0: Welcome to the inclusive leader podcast. The practice of inclusive leadership enables us to tackle the complex challenges of our times. This is the space for conversations about inclusive leadership. I am your host, Jörg Schmitz, and I welcome you to this episode. In this episode, I have the pleasure of introducing Julia Gaspar Bates. Julia is an interculturalist and president of Intercultural Alliances. A consulting firm she founded. In her work, she illuminates the cultural factors that can so easily derail communication, relationships, and projects in today's global, diverse, and really complex environments. Among many other aspects, we discuss the differences between DEI and interculturalist perspectives. We also explore. The role of mindfulness and trauma sensitivity in the evolution of the intercultural field. Thank you for listening to our conversation. So, Julia, I mean, I, it, it's wonderful for you to be able to, for me to to talk to you a little bit and interview you in a certain sense. But um, but I usually start with this question: What do you do? And then I'm I'm really curious to hear people describe what they do and and so forth. So. So what do you do, Julia?
1: Yeah, well, thank you. and I'm delighted to be here and to to reconnect with you. Um, So I guess my two-minute elevator speech, right? I'm an intercultural trainer and consultant and facilitator, uh, and I basically help um, teams and leaders work effectively uh, across cultures, uh, learn how to communicate more effectively across linguistic barriers, um, lead and, and work on teams across cultures, and really develop the skill set um, to help them navigate those challenges.
0: And that's what what links us together a little bit of that shared work in this intercultural space. And I'm just wondering, I mean, for for those that are listening that are not as familiar with this field, I mean, sometimes some people call it um, cross-cultural. Some people say intercultural. Some people leave the inter or cross out altogether. um, And they just, just focus on cultural. How do you, you know, kind of does it matter to you or or do you do you make a differentiation there?
1: You know, honestly, I don't. I mean, I know some people do, but for me, they're really very entwined. Um, and, you know, you could say intercultural is between cultures versus cross cultures, across cultures, if you really want to get into the semantics of it. But I really think it's more about how you bring people together in a context across differences and Certainly, you know, I have traditionally done that across national differences, but in recent years, a lot more of my work has become much more intersectional. And, um, you know, I think that we used to look at culture much more monolithically around, at least in my field as an interculturalist, of looking mostly on a macro level at national cultures. But I've really seen that shift a lot in recent years. And I would say now I'm doing a lot more global diversity, equity and inclusion work as well.
0: Maybe we we can talk about this a little bit because I've, I mean, in my own career, I've always been a bit troubled by this equation of nationality and culture because from my perspective and, you know, nationality is a political construct and, and culture is not, at least not in that, in the same sense. So oftentimes, the nationality construct has to do with power relationships and historical warfare and empires and those kinds of things, which have cut right through cultural or ethnic differences. And and that's what troubled me when I discovered, as an anthropologist, this field of intercultural, cross-cultural, however we want to look at this, this this connection with national culture, or this 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 close association with national culture,
1: yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that you know, it's 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 interesting because I have the opportunity in my work to work with a lot of people from former colonial you know countries that that the the borders may have been defined by the colonial powers, right? And so, when you talk about you know a country you know, um, particularly some of the countries in in West Africa and Africa, people don't necessarily identify with their national culture. You know, it's much more with the, you know, with their their ethnic groups and um, where they have linguistic, religious, you know, cultural similarities and norms of behavior. And I've even seen that in some of my work where you may have a country office in a country, but you've got these different and conflictual oftentimes groups working. And, you know, a a great example was last week, I was uh, doing a leadership program for people working in what we consider to be fragile conflict and violent countries. And there was a gentleman who was a leader in in Ethiopia, in Addis Ababa. And he had, you know, with a conflict with the Tigrayan in the North, and he had both groups and was really struggling with how to address that with the Tigrayans and the, you know, the Eritreans and, know people were being killed there were villages that were being massacred so I mean those are really tough situations for a leader (laughs) Um, you know and it's really brought up a whole different type of skill set that's needed in addition to the cultural competence which is what really my background has been in in helping people um, cultivate because you know it's 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 complex right our world is complex particularly (laughs) today
0: (laughs) yeah no kidding And also, what a challenge, right, for, I mean, (laughs) I look at it, as you know, through this lens of inclusive leadership, but, you know, it's one thing to sit in an organization in the executive suite or something like this and, and think about what does inclusive leadership mean in my organization when I'm having all these departments or business units or so and I need to, you know, get, I mean, stitch them together and create community, you know, but when you're sitting in the midst of a geography where there is warfare happening, right? And your job is now to reconcile and bring people together. What do you, I mean, how do you, I mean, just out of curiosity, how do you apply that intercultural lens and what you do in a situation like that? How how do I need to imagine your work?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I have to say it's been a a really welcoming challenge for me (laughs) doing this work. to to really help leaders because I don't personally have any experience in in that type of an environment. So you're kind of, you know, feeling around in the dark a little bit. Um, You know, I think that what I've learned from the people that I've been working with over the years doing this, this work with this particular demographics is, you know, you need to really cultivate humility. First of all, that you don't know when you're going into really difficult backgrounds. And I'm a big, huge fan of of Brene Brown's, you know, and and I think that vulnerability is a really important skill for leadership. Um, And I'll share a story about that in just a moment as well. Um, And I think really just, you know, you can't be empathic. You know, we talk about so much about empathy in our field, but if you haven't experienced what your teams have experienced, which many leaders coming into these environments haven't necessarily because they're coming from Western countries or, you know, non, you know, conflictual countries, um, you really have to be compassionate, which I think is is something that's very different than empathy, because you can't associate, but you can really find those ways of connection and and really re- maintain par- impartiality as well. Yeah, there's so much complexity in environments where there's conflict. Um and so many layers of it and so many things that most people would not even begin to understand. Um especially if you're a leader kind of going in to hit the ground running. <laughs> um and so just being super careful about neutrality and not showing any prioritization to one group over the other, you know, especially if they're trying to polarize each other. Mm-hmm. But I think that really finding that human connection and and I recently heard a quote by Manoush Shafiq, I think is her name. She's the president of the London school of economics who said that jobs used to be about muscle and then they became about the brain and the future is of the heart. And I think that that's really resonates with us, right. In terms of what we're trying to do um, working with leaders um, and especially global leaders you know, they're they're just—it's remarkable to hear their stories and their experiences.
0: Yeah. So neutrality, compassion, and seeking that human connection.
1: Yeah, and and humility. You know, I yeah. think humility is really important too. Yeah. You know, and vulnerability. I was I was going to share. You know, I've got many many stories, but um, a story I was working with a leader, and uh, I won't say which countries, but she was um, she was from Haiti, and she had gone into uh, where she was kind of the country manager for for two countries that had undergone um, civil war, you know, years of civil war, as well as a uh, pandemic internally. Okay. And, you know, in the workshop that we were delivering, that I was delivering for them, um, we were having them do some sharing, some deep sharing and finding connection points. And she and I debriefed. And, and a few days later, I was doing another workshop for for the team in the other country And she shared with me that she had um, lost her mother in the earthquake in Haiti a number of years ago. And she didn't know if she should share that with the team as something that was really, you know, significant in her life. And, you know, of course, after um, giving my condolences and everything, I said, you know, they might really resonate with that, given what they've gone through, that to see that there's a leader who's suffered, you know, not in the same capacity as them, but in another way, and it was so interesting because when she did that, she decided to do that in the workshop and it just opened the floodgates. And it was amazing how people really were much more willing to put themselves forward and to share stories. So for me, I was I was very touched by that.
0: Absolutely. And that in itself builds that connection, right? Talking about cross-cultural connection or bridging divides sometimes that we presume that are there or that are really there or, or so powerful yeah Yeah. it's a far cry from when I think about when I first encountered this intercultural field where it was all about the Hofstede research and you know the scales of difference you you know uncertainty avoidance or you know power distance or those kind of things but it seems to me that I mean how, how how are you using those kind of things in your work or do they has that changed over the years and
1: no. I mean, yes, and I mean I would say that Hofstedt is is, you know, still kind of the grandfather of a lot of this. And certainly a lot of the research was started by him and people like Edward T. Hall or Trumpanars, but um, as well as some notable anthropologists, of course. But I think that it's it's looked at differently. It's not so, you know, black or white.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: and you know, I use a number of different tools that measure cultural preferences. And a lot of those tools still measure national culture. But of course, we know that that shifts, right? We know that there's a lot with different generations right now. I mean, there's huge shifts in the generational culture, particularly with millennials and now Gen Z that are entering into the workforce, you know, that have grown up in the digital age. I mean, they, they look and act and think and do things very differently than than you know boomers or or gen xers like myself. Um, you know I think that that there's we we need to move beyond that monolithic way of looking at culture which is really what research like Hofstede did and that's where the intersectionality comes in much more. So it's it's more interesting, it's more textured and richer, but it's also more complex because yes, of course you know you have course. to you know when you have people really delve into that it's delving into their their experiences. And yes, national culture certainly has an impact. Our shared history or our political you know infrastructure, our educational system has a huge impact on how we operate right? um, how we process and all of that. But it goes far beyond that too. And I think that that's what's where I personally have seen the field evolve in a really positive way and and I think that it's helped also kind of tailor some of my work doing more the you know diversity, equity, inclusion work as well as having that deeper understanding.
0: Yeah, and I think there's a, I mean, almost a natural, you know, confluence of these two fields, right? The diversity field and the intercultural field that are coming with different histories as well and different, different kind of thoughtware, you know, different models or so. But there is a real synergy that 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 can be created.
1: There is. I think that the difference from for what I have seen from my my experience personally is that the intercultural field doesn't deal with power, privilege, and oppression in the same way. There's not the same social justice bent as some of the diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, DEI trainings or DEIB or DEIA. You know, there's there's different acronyms for it now. Um, bring in. But you know, it's it's interesting because I think about a common theme, and that's something that's been a theme for me my whole life as well, is just belonging, right? And I think that that's yeah. one of the, the points of convergence for the two is how you create that sense of belonging, whether it's people working or moving across national country boundaries and linguistic ones and geographic ones, or belonging internally where you might be part of an underrepresented group that's historically been discriminated, you know, how do you find that meaning in the workplace? And I know that we've done a lot of that in our work together as well, but but really a real important piece that really converges the two fields.
0: Yeah. It's interesting, I mean, that you mentioned that DEI or in whatever (laughs) configuration adds that power and social justice component that was missing in the intercultural uh, field. And I would totally agree at the same time i also wonder whether that is hasn't always been a big miss or a big kind of gap in doing intercultural work
1: yeah it's a good point i mean most likely it has uh, you know i think that the intercultural work you know and it's interesting i've talked to people including my sister who's worked in the dei field and, and she said, you know, they, a lot of people in the DEI field kind of see interculturalists as, you know, they don't get it. You know, they don't really understand the, the depth of this. Um, and, you, you know, I, I, it's hard to say. I, I do think that there is that missing. I think when you're looking at macro cultures, you know, I mean, I had the opportunity a number of years ago to do some course design, um, curriculum design with anthropologists, which, of course, I know is your background. And, and it was really interesting for me to, as the sole interculturalist on the team, to really see the convergence of those two fields as well, which is dissect, you know, anthropologists really go down and take one small element of a culture where I was looking at things on a much more macro level at that point. And I think that that has shifted over time. I mean, I think, as I mentioned, the intersectionality has really caused that to shift quite a bit, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's all interesting, right? (laughs)
0: Yeah. Well, it's all interesting, but it's also important to kind of know where we come from. I mean, anthropology is, you know, I mean, from my perspective, has a really complicated history, right? And in order to, it's almost what that history has done to anthropologists is essentially focusing on the micro and really, really abstaining from any kind of macro level judgments, analysis, assessments, and, and those kind of things, because that's what got the discipline into trouble, you know, to begin with. And Absolutely. so no surprise <laughs> there, actually, right? But, but what I always appreciate, though, that the we, we, these are all different lenses, de the intercultural field, wherever it comes from, anthropology, all of these are just different lenses on the same phenomenon. Right, the human beings in interactions, if you will, in interactions and in relationships, in what I call relational fields, right? And and I think in your work you essentially deepen the connection in those relational fields, so that true collaboration and sometimes just respect, right, or peace, as we, <laughs> as you just mentioned in in certain si- situations, can actually somehow take hold.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely. And you know, I think that that's that's so critical right now, right? I mean, we've got so much work cut out for us still, which is why so many of us are busy, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. but but that's what gets me out of bed in the morning, you know, is just that hope of, you know, sometimes making a tiny shift. Sometimes it is a tiny, tiny shift in perspective or understanding or having those light bulb moments for people. Um, you're not going to move mountains overnight, certainly, but I think, I think that that the work that we move the needle a little bit further that creates that. yeah. and and dialogue is an important piece. I mean, you know, i'm I'm actually um, collaborating with a woman in my neighborhood. I live in a very culturally diverse in many, many aspects, uh, neighborhood right outside of Washington, d c. And we've got, I mean, you can name all of the diversity that we have here. We pretty much can check all of the boxes. And we're starting a series of critical cultural conversations,
0: um, Mm, which
1: is really I think it's, you know, starting that at a community level is really important because these are your neighbors. These are the people that you're living around. And, you know, it's a very progressive neighborhood overall. But we've got political divergence here. We've got, you know, socioeconomic, cultural, religious, you know, quite a bit of religious divergence, sexual orientation. You know, I mean, there's a lot of and, and about. 50 different nationalities as well living here. So, because um, we're, we're very close to the university. So it's, it's you know, opening that space for people to dialogue.
0: Is that where you start? So when a client, when somebody calls you and say, Julia, we have a, we suspect we have an intercultural issue. <laughs> you, you know, is that where you start that dialogue? Or is this something you're leading up to, to that dialogue? How should I imagine?
1: yeah. Well, I mean, I, I do certainly, you know, the dialogue with the client and say, tell me what's going on, (laughs) you know, what are some of the issues Mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and they don't always know what they don't know. Right. I mean, they can't articulate it. People think it's personality clashes sometimes. So it's really finding ways to ask the right questions, but not make assumptions. You know, I think, I think that this is the, the tricky part of our field is that there's a fine line when you're talking about culture not to say, well, this is how X people are, right? I mean, you really have to be very, very careful of that because it's much, much more complex, you know? So I think what I try to do is, I think storytelling is really important and get people to tell stories, um, you know, to listen, to share with each other, because that opens that space a little bit more for respectful listening. So I would say that you know it's it's embedded in some of the the workshops that I do and the trainings that I do, but it's not the core of it. Um but I think that there needs to be more of that,
0: yeah, dialogue. I think it's incredibly important. It's increasingly important because people's stories are not told. And sometimes I feel we're in a social context where people are really afraid to be vulnerable. To your point around vulnerability is really important, but people are also afraid to be vulnerable even the language they use, because culturally, again, there is oftentimes a high level of sensitivity. How do we describe one another? Um, how, What words do we actually use? I mean, there seems to be that heightened attention to these kind of things.
1: Absolutely. And we're living in a world of cancel culture, right? right. So there's also that, that a lot of people are tiptoeing around things. And, and you know it's it's a tricky one because you know I'm very sensitive to microaggressions. I'm very sensitive to, you know, the subjective experience that people have lived, especially people who have traditionally been un, you know discriminated against. Um, and I also feel like that we need to kind of get it out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that that you need to have that really create, and that's the challenge of creating that psychologically safe space for people to really be open to say, to step into that space and say, I'm a racist, you know, instead of I'm not a racist, you know, which you hear so many people say, right? (laughs) And I think that you you can't deny that racism is is institutionalized, you know, if you're not going to have a conversation about it, you're just going to keep those polar sides. And, you know, and I remember in graduate school, kind of the first time having that those discussions, and it's super uncomfortable, right? Super, super uncomfortable for everybody. Yeah. But I think it's important because otherwise we're not going to move forward.
0: Right. So I'm just wondering this idea of moving forward, right? I mean, so in a certain sense, I, I mean, I feel this certainly, and that's a big motivator for me. And what I do is of almost helping social, cultural development forward, <laughs> you know, or or somehow being part of a movement that moves the culture, broadly speaking. Of uh, forward. So I wonder what, I mean, in, and we live in a time right now when, it, when I find it very hard to even understand where forward is. <laughs> you know, it seems that we have been terribly regressive times as well. But also where, I mean, how it's hard to stay motivated, you, you know, sometimes. And I'm just wondering, where does your motivation to do this work come from? And how are you seeing the direction of, you know, are you, are you hopeful? Are you well? I guess to stay in this work, we have to stay hopeful, almost right. But yeah,
1: well, days that I read the news a lot, I'm not very hopeful. But when I when I manage to stay <laughs> away from that, I, I am. No, I mean I am because I think that you know I see that in my work. I see that with the people I work with. I see yeah. my own assumptions and biases coming out sometimes in the work saying, oh, this person's there, just not get it at all. And then they do, you know? Sure. So that's what gives me a lot of hope is, it, like I said, you're not going to radically change things overnight, but I feel like we're planting seeds. Mm-hmm. And anytime you plant a seed, there's hope for growth, right? You can't, you can't force it. I think there are limitations with, with what we do as trainers and facilitators because, you know, with the exception of a few clients that have me kind of come back more you know, like the teams, I might do learning journeys or things like that with, with teams for their development. Oftentimes it's one-offs, right? And I think that the limitations that we have is that we don't necessarily get to see the fruits of what we've planted, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and that can be difficult. So it's wonderful. You know, I'll give an example. This, this was um, a, a workshop that I did with, with um, a few years ago and it was a senior partner in uh in a firm that, that you know well and really nice guy but it was it was a very senior leadership when we were doing a pilot and I was I was co-facilitating with a colleague and nice guy but he kind of came in folded his arms and he said look I've been a leader for 30 years he was very high level I've been mm-hmm. a leader for 30 years. Why do I have to change what I do? I've been successful with what I do. Mm. And I thought oh boy here we go. <laughs> <laughs> and you know at the end of the workshop it was probably one of the best compliments that i've got and he came up to to me and my co-facilitator and he said you know i came in here thinking i couldn't learn anything and i knew it all and i'm at the level that i'm at now because i've been successful at what i've done and he said you changed that this is one of the best workshops i've ever attended and that for me was was why i do this work yeah you know because when you have that you realize that Sometimes it's frustrating. sometimes you really have to keep your feet planted on the ground and take a deep breath or many deep breaths, but you also have those situations. And that just makes me so happy. Yeah. <laughs> it makes, you know, because i'm I mean, I'm not there to teach. I'm there to facilitate other people's learning. It's inside them. it's right. it's where do we find those connections again. We all have it. We're human, right? We just get we lose sight of it sometimes. Yeah. and biases get in the way. and, you know, Our own experiences and and things so it's it's just helping people move beyond that
0: yeah we are no exception or exemption i should say but it's so true i have the same i mean when that's the impact that you create then you're reminded of the hope (laughs) that does exist and is there in the world right yeah. So what? Motive, I mean, what what motivated you to do this to begin with? I mean, this is this is tough work, and you do it masterfully.
1: Well, I, I I'd say I fell into it, but then I didn't. I mean, my path probably since birth was kind of destined to do this work. Um, you know, I was I was born in London. Um, I grew up in a bicultural family in the states, in a small town, where I never felt like I belonged there. You know, I felt I, I always felt very drawn back to Europe. Um, my parents were both from big cities and it was a small, pretty homogenous town. So I didn't have a lot of cultural, you know, exposure. I mean, the exposure I had was kind of waspy, wealthy culture and and my family was middle-class. So even there we didn't feel, I didn't feel a sense of belonging. So I guess I didn't realize it until much later when I thought about belonging and how, do, how do you feel that? But I always felt like I had a foot back in, in, in Europe and it felt very comfortable for me there. So I always felt that sort of divide, Um, I don't know why, but when I was five, I wanted to learn other languages. So I pretended that I spoke foreign languages and walked around the house. So, I mean, it was kind of, (laughs) I don't know, embedded in me, you know, my parents both like to travel a lot. So I I had that exposure from a young age to other cultures because I had family overseas and, and because, you know, we, we traveled and and I wanted to learn languages. So I I did. And that was my major in college. You know, I, I learned French, Spanish and Italian. And then I, Studied abroad twice, and then um, at the time I was still a European citizen before Brexit. So, <laughs> so when I finished, I finished my my degree. I moved to Paris, and I spent all of my twenties there. And you know, a lot of what I I do now is to help people not do what I did, which was you know tripping and falling and getting back up and trying to figure things out because I didn't even know that cross cultural training was a field. You know, I had never even heard of it. Right. And and it was still really in its infancy in some ways um, yeah. when I was living there. And I moved back to the States and I started a graduate school program in this. And and it was interesting, too, because when I started grad school, I, I mean, I had traveled at that point on multiple continents. I spoke several languages. I'd, I'd done business internationally, you know, when I was when I was working in Paris and I was traveling internationally. So I kind of I came in a little bit cocky, I have to say, <laughs> thought like, well, is this is just to get the degree. and. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, of course, you, you get slapped in the face really quickly with that, right? I mean, I, yes. I learned pretty fast. Oh, there's a lot more to learn here. It's is more than theory. So, you know, through graduate work. But I would say, I mean, I've been doing this work now. I've, I've lived in other countries since then as well, um, mostly in Latin America. But, you know, I talked about humility before, and that's a learning process, right? And every single day I do this work, I feel humbled by what I don't know. And I tell people that, you know, yes, I'm considered to be an expert in culture, but there is so much I don't know. And, right. and it's impossible. And that's what makes it super interesting.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's not like there is a body of knowledge that you just then master. I mean, it's it's every day there is a, is a new facet to learn. I think the only thing we can become experts in is maybe in how we you know facilitate people through that discovery process. And even that is riddled with new discoveries all the time.
1: And we make mistakes, you know, and I think, you know, I I am a big person, like I said, about being vulnerable. I will stay there and I will tell people, I don't know everything. You know, I'll answer your questions as best I can. But, you know, if we had all the answers to this, I mean, you know, (laughs) wow, right? I mean, it would be incredible, you know, here's some suggestions that you can try. Have you thought about this? Because it's it's much more than just culture, right? I mean, we're talking about human dynamics. We're talking about trauma. We're talking about, you know, so much complexity.
0: Yes. You mentioned just mentioned trauma. And I'm just curious if you think that is because, I mean, at least in my perception, in the last few years, trauma, for many reasons, maybe catalyzed by COVID and so forth, has also become much more part of our consciousness, is that a real step change for the intercultural field to actually, you know, recognize that? Or do you think, or, or, I mean, maybe it's not a field, maybe it's in your practice that you, you focus on that. But I, I think it's actually a real potential changer of a lot of, of, of the lens through which we look at differences and experience and history.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's actually very important, you know, and I'll share a personal story around this that my husband's a psychologist and we've been talking about it because a few years ago we moved to Ecuador with our our daughter who was then 13 and wanted her to have a cultural immersion experience and put her in in a local, you know, it was a private Ecuadorian school where she spoke French, but she didn't know any Spanish except for fundamentals like, hola, como esta, you know? And, you know, we didn't realize what we thought would be this wonderful experience that that was actually quite traumatic for her. Yeah. And, you know, at a very primal age of shaping, you know, a young person Sure. and it really sensitized me to, I don't do a lot of work these days with expatriation training, but I have in the past and I've been doing quite a few actually in recent months for the first time in years, but there's trauma for people moving to other cultures, especially for kids, you know, for third culture kids you know, which I thought, wow, what an amazing experience, and it is. But that's that's a trauma. You know, I, I have a cousin who is British, but didn't really live in in the UK. Her she was born in Malawi. She lived grew up in the Middle East. You know, she lives in France now. Um, and and you know just talking with her about that sense of belonging, even you know, yeah. it's it's difficult for people to find that. So I think that the you know that's just one aspect. I mean, certainly in diversity, equity, inclusion work, there's a lot of trauma that people have.
0: Yeah. So
1: I think yeah. that it's something that needs to be developed more. And certainly a lot of researchers in our fields, respectively, are are psychologists as well. But I think that we we need to bring that more to the forefront. And and I think you're right, particularly post COVID. That's even more critical. Post-COVID, post-George Floyd, in, you know, all of the social and cultural unrest that we've had worldwide, not just in the U.S., um, it needs to be brought up more.
0: And even in trauma research, there has been a, 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 a lot of change, actually, in how people, how we understand and define trauma. Even, and I think that's, I mean, there is an there is an opening there, a real opportunity to look at even cultural histories differently. I mean, it's, it's, you know, what's in our lineage, the trauma that we carry. Yeah.
1: You know, I've been really pondering this idea in recent months, Jorg. I'm curious your um, impression of it too, because we have a lot of mental health issues right now in this country in particular. I mean, worldwide, obviously we do, but I've really been thinking about displacement and, you know, the United States, everybody is a displaced person. You know, whether you were a Native American and you were displaced by the original colonialists, certainly African-Americans who were forced displaced, but everybody's displaced. And that's in our genetic DNA here, picking up and leaving the the erosion of communities and that belonging. And I'm just really curious, you know, in in the past couple of years, I've had a chance to help some of the Afghan families that were forced, you know, when, when the Taliban took over again, And a number moved to, you know, the Washington, D.C. and many other areas in the country. But I got to know a couple of families. And I just, you know, these were people who were working, you know, I mean, highly professional, skilled people working in positions with international organizations. And one family uh, shared four kids, the ages between one and nine. And they had to decide within 10 minutes to leave their country. Wow! 10 minutes that's how critical it was. And here they find themselves living in this, he speaks English, his wife, you know, and I go to their house and she would always make me this Afghan bread, you know, and just like, wouldn't like leave me with, you know, I mean, it was just the hospitality was amazing. But I really thought about that in terms of trauma. I mean, you know, for us as, as interculturalists and anthropologists, I think that that is an area that really warrants a lot more you know, because we're we're having more and more displaced people yeah. all over, right? I mean, Ukrainians right now, same thing. You know, um, Ethiopians and Eritreans. I mean, you know, sure. and Syrians. I mean, it's 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 going on and on. So I think it needs to become much more intentional in our work.
0: Yeah, I think so too. And not just the trauma that is going on, but the proximate trauma also that people have experienced just a few generations before. Because I, I mean, I'm you know. I was. My parents are. grew up in the Second World War, essentially, right in Germany, and and so how can they not be traumatized, right? And how can I can they not have, in in some of my cultural conditioning, um, how can trauma not be be a big part of that, right? Yeah, and, and yet we don't necessarily build our empathy around that, or or our compassion potentially, or our, even our the way we look at ourselves and our parent generation, or so. So, I think there is, is great potential in in opening that window.
1: Yeah, so true. You know, I mean, I've actually been doing a lot of personal work around that recently, around my mother who passed away many many years ago now but grew up in London during the Blitz. And, you know, I remember her when I was young saying that there was a house on her street, you know, a neighbor's house that had been, you know, bombed to rubble. I mean, and as a young child, that's pretty traumatic (laughs) to experience that.
0: Yeah. So now we took us from (laughs) really exciting (laughs) professional work to a really um, difficult one. But I mean, it's all connected on some levels, right? And, 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 I'm wondering I'm looking at our time a little bit as well. but from from all your learnings and teachings and experiences, are there a few things that stand out where you feel that everybody, if if we if they just practice this a little bit and it's it's easy, it's simple to practice, that we can make this world a little little better, less traumatic potentially?
1: yeah, oh yeah. I mean, there's so many. Things It's easy to say, just open your mind, you know, just be curious. You know? yeah. <laughs> Easier said than done. Right. But I think, I, I honestly think it's listening. You know, I think that that's something that's really important. Now we multitask so much. We're not present. We're so busy that people aren't present. Mm-hmm. And I try to infuse a lot of mindfulness into my work as well. And I think that being able to just listen, have listening circles, hear other points of view, hear other perspectives, just not say anything, not defend, not jump in, but just hear each other, I think that's a start. And if people can do that, if we can bring that more into our work intentionally, but also encourage other people to do that, I think that that can go a far, a long way in helping.
0: Yeah. And I think you just reminded me that mindfulness might be that other window that really takes the field of inter or the intercultural practice forward.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I've been bringing that, I'm a mindfulness practitioner and, and, and teacher, and I've been bringing that into my work for years now, but I remember the first time when I was doing it with a group of C-suite executives and I thought, Oh boy, <laughs> is this going to be really woo woo? How are they going to respond to this? But I think it connects people, you know, I mean, sometimes connecting with your breath when you're holding your breath and you're anxious, you're triggered emotionally. I mean, that, you say something that you don't mean afterwards. So let's just pause, you know,
0: power of the pause. Well, thanks for exploring this a little bit, Julia.
1: My pleasure. It's always just great to talk to you, York. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: <laughs> sure, you're very welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can sign up for more wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for the Inclusive Leader Podcast. To find out more about the Inclusive Leadership Institute, visit us at www.theinclusiveleadershipinstitute.com.